Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, America. My name is Audie Barkin, and I am speaking to you through this computer voice because I have been paralyzed by a mysterious illness called ALS. If you're familiar with progressive politics or the policy battles over healthcare in the United States, there's a good chance you've heard of Adi Barkin. Since my shocking diagnosis, I have traveled the country meeting countless patients like me, demanding more of our representatives and our democracy. In 2016, Adi was diagnosed with ALS, a progressive neurodegenerative disease. He was 32. He and his wife, Rachel King, had been married just a year. His son, Carl, was a newborn. And doctors were telling him that in a matter of years, he would essentially be trapped in his body, unable to move or breathe on his own. In the face of immense loss, mourning the future he'd imagined, terrified of the reality that now stretched out in front of him, Adi became even more focused, clear-eyed about what he wanted to do with his time. Adi's a lawyer, and he'd been an activist for years, working for racial and economic justice. He'd worked in immigration rights. He'd organized for the Center for Popular Democracy, leading protests and developing a campaign for monetary reform within the Federal Reserve. And he realized in evaluating what really made him happy, that activism fed his soul. Over the last four years, Adi's organized massive advocacy campaigns, including a recent push to waive patents for COVID vaccines. He's flown across the country while paralyzed to testify in front of Congress in support of Medicare for All. That clip you heard at the beginning of this episode, that was his speech for the 2020 Democratic National Convention. I met Adi on Twitter. I'd read his writing. He'd read both mine and my late husband Paul's. From afar, I thought he was brilliant, and the more I got to know him, the more I realized he was wrestling with some of the same questions that had plagued us when Paul got cancer, and that so many of us wrestle with in our hardest moments. When you're facing hardship, how do you choose whether to accept or resist? How do you cope when you know that resisting won't change things? And how do you learn to live with that voice in your head, the one that hisses, this just isn't fair. I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, and this is Gravity, a show about what becomes possible when we look at hardships differently. It's been five years since Adi's ALS diagnosis. He and his family live in Santa Barbara, California, which is where I went to meet them in 2019. Adi uses a motorized wheelchair now. He talks through a computer using eye movements. Welcome to Santa Barbara. It's a real pleasure and honor to meet you. Thanks. Um, so I just read your book, Eyes to the Wind, and it's really beautiful. It's full of a lot of powerful writing. Um, you start out the book saying, on September 30th, 2016, 
Rachel and I celebrated one year of marriage and 11 years together by dropping Carl off with my mother and checking into a boutique hotel in West Hollywood. After four months of bliss with our new son, we were ready for our first night away from him and for a full night's sleep. We arrived at the hotel around 5 p.m. and decided to have sex immediately, in large part so that we could go to sleep right after dinner. And I love this intro so much. I'm kind of obsessed with it. I think it's super funny. It sets this kind of really personal, honest tone that I think you keep up through the book where you're writing about your own life, but then you say really powerful things about, you know, big parts of our human existence, like agency and injustice, certainly, and hope and legacy. What made you decide to write a memoir? Thank you so much for saying that. I was definitely unsure about the intro. Rachel is a private person. She joked that a sex scene with her was a dream come true. I decided to write the book because I wanted to leave something useful behind, for the progressive movement and also for Carl. I thought about writing a memoir early on after my disease struck, but worried that I didn't have anything worthwhile to say about life and death. But a co-worker, Ruben, who I considered brutally honest and not sentimental, said that I should just write my story and it will be worthwhile on its own. Sometimes we just all need that friend who sees you in the way that the world might, you know. I love it. Could you talk a little bit about your diagnosis that struck? The moment where you go on this new parent getaway in 2016, you had started to notice that your left hand was getting weak, and I think you thought it was carpal tunnel syndrome maybe initially, and then within a few weeks, you were diagnosed with ALS. Yeah, it was incredibly rapid. One week from telling a doctor that something was wrong to getting the diagnosis, those early days were visceral and overwhelming. The news was shocking and totalizing. It felt unreal. I was outraged and I felt the desire to rage against the news. Maybe if I was furious enough at it, it would go away. But I also then moved into acceptance mode quickly, or at least I tried to. I knew that disasters strike every day. And I settled on the phase, ALS is not a joke and not a bad dream. Every morning when I woke up, the knot in my stomach was still there and so was ALS. It's wild, isn't it? You're one person one week, and the next week you're this totally different person in a new world. I think it's really interesting that you just said this thing about trying to figure out how to accept it, and maybe like realizing early on that the task you had to do was like figure out how to live in a world where you could accept what was happening. I'm really interested in that tension, it seems, in your life, because you have built this whole career literally defined around resistance and resisting injustice. And then you suddenly become a person for whom acceptance is this big priority and the resistance part has to recede. Well, I knew that I wanted to keep on living, but I didn't want to feel overwhelming physical and mental anguish. And that was what I was feeling during every minute that my mind was thinking about ALS. I didn't want to repress the reality because that sounded unhealthy. So I began trying to find a way to permit the reality of ALS to exist while I went on living. And that was, I think, a search for acceptance. How did you get there? I think, you know, for anything that people are struggling with, 
it's a really difficult path, I think, to make it to that place. And I think it can be sort of a recurrent thing, right? Like a thing that's an active struggle over time. Sitting here now, I think that there were perhaps two different components to my acceptance. The first was intellectual. Acknowledging that I have the disease, that it is no joke and no bad dream, that it will almost certainly kill me, and that the long future life we had planned for together was not going to happen. That intellectual, cognitive awareness and acceptance happened very quickly, basically immediately. It was informed by my politics, my awareness of my tremendous privilege compared to most of the world's 7 billion people and the others who came before us. Knowing what others have gone through and go through made me feel less shocked, less disbelieving that this could happen to me. But I think when we talk about acceptance, we mean something deeper than that. We mean something like finding peace in the presence of the new reality. Finding that peace is an ongoing endeavor, even today. Adi's entire career has been about taking on fights with powerful opponents. Immigrant rights, economic justice, universal health care. Resistance has been his way of life. And then he encountered ALS. He ultimately realized that raging against the disease wouldn't help. So Adi has had to find a different way through. First, it was that intellectual acceptance that suffering is something all of us can expect in some form. And if that's not hard enough, Adi talks about a second kind of acceptance, the kind that settles into our souls, not just our minds. And maybe with that comes some peace. Adi shared that he likes Pema Chodron's writing on this, like the book When Things Fall Apart. Pema Chodron says, rather than being disheartened by what life throws at us, what if we accepted it and relaxed into it? What if we said, yes, this is the way it is. This is what it means to be human and decided to sit down and enjoy the ride. But wow, that's a tall order to learn to say yes to hardship instead of no or yes to feelings like anger or sadness instead of pushing them away. That's why meditation helps, I think, because it teaches you to watch those feelings float by instead. It goes both ways too. Learning to live alongside grief helps you not miss out on things that are still joyful and beautiful. You said in your memoir that you and your family ultimately came up with a couple of mantras. Well, one was to do what we can while we can. Every activity could be viewed through the lens of loss. That is, that I wouldn't be able to do it soon. A hike, a meal, anything. But the mantra meant that we should enjoy the activity now, rather than bemoan its impending loss. I want to ask you one other question about this tension between acceptance and resistance, which is something that you've put in your writing where you react to um, the serenity prayer, Reinhold Niebuhr's serenity prayer, which goes like this. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And you in your writing have talked about how you sort of reconceptualize or maybe reorder that prayer. Do you mind sharing that? I think there is a paradox in the prayer because, how can we know the difference between what we can change and what we can't change until we try? Whether it's in a relationship, or at work, or in our bodies, or in American society writ large, 
it's so often impossible to know that difference. The praxis of activism says, I think, that you have to try to change things for the better, even if you don't know you can win. Acceptance and serenity can come later, perhaps, but you have to start with courage. I've thought a lot about this reordering that Adi talked about, because he's right. How do you know you can't win if you don't even try? But I think even when it comes to something you can't beat, like terminal illness, there actually is still a battle to fight, and it's this, a struggle to forge meaning, a fight to find new purpose as you live into a life you didn't expect. That purpose is something different for everyone. Adi at first tried to just sit back and enjoy what time he had left, spend it with his family and friends, give himself some space to mourn the things he'd be missing out on. It took him two months, he said, to get back to even a baseline of normal, to rebuild from what felt like a complete collapse. But as Adi regained his footing, he heard the siren song of what he calls resistance work, which was, well, irresistible. Returning to activism has been a salvation for me. It has allowed me to focus on a purpose much larger than myself. It has helped me form deep bonds of solidarity with many people. It's given me a sense of agency and power despite the disintegration of my body. It has been a huge ego boost because people have responded well to it. It has, in short, allowed me to make meaning out of my illness, and even liberation from it, as I tie my destiny and my identity to that of others. For me, activism is liberating me from ALS because it brings me out of my body and into communal space. It ties my future to yours. It even lets me live on past my death, in the memories and struggles and dreams of my comrades. That's why I say it is liberating for me. It has power greater than death. We're going to take a moment for a quick ad break. We'll be back in a minute. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, an online counseling platform. In this show, we explore how to live in or even close the gap between our lived reality and the circumstances we'd wished for instead. Therapy is one tool a lot of people use. With BetterHelp, you'll be able to get connected with a licensed therapist perfectly matched to your needs for professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Stick around after our episode to hear me in conversation with one of these amazing counselors. As a listener to our show, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash gravitypod. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gravitypod. Welcome back to Gravity. So for many of Adi's most famous activist moments, and for nearly every other moment too, there's been someone by Adi's side, his wife, Rachel. So I wanted to ask you about your, some of your thoughts about marriage or partnership, because obviously parenthood and illness can both affect a marriage. And I'm interested in how it's been going for you guys. And when you had said, we were needing to learn to do these things. We were needing to learn to accept. I'm assuming like your biggest partner and all of that has been your wife, Rachel. And I'm curious, maybe I guess first, if you think about 
Well, maybe I'll just ask you like what you love about Rachel. I love her independence and her drive. I love her sense of responsibility and integrity. I love when she shakes and tears up with full-bodied laughter. I love her memory and her patience. I love her bright orange hair, and I really love the streaks of silver that have been spreading throughout it in recent years. In your book, you talk about how you met Rachel in college and how you were like a, I think a student who was working on the student newspaper and then she was the editor and how she fired most of the staff, but she didn't fire you. She kept you around. Yes. At the start of her tenure, she fired half the opinion columnists, but I escaped her wrath. <laughs> I love what you said about like loving the streaks of um, gray or silver in her hair. And I just think that's so beautiful, like this idea of loving someone over time. And we're sitting in your living room and there's a picture of you and Rachel when you're graduating from college. and. You're wearing like these pale blue mortarboards and gowns from Columbia University, and um, you just look so young and sweet. You know, when you get married, I think you're signing up for an unknown path together. Like you're signing up for something in which love is the compass, but you don't know where you're going, you know? And so I think something struck me about you loving Rachel's changing hair, like loving somebody in all the ways they change. Well, but silver streaks are easy to love. It's much harder to love my drooling mouth or my limp hand, which has to be readjusted 10 times in the middle of the night, or my weak bladder that makes a huge mess for her to clean up. ALS imposes enormous strains on both of us, and on our relationship. We can't have the same partnership we used to. I need constant care, and I can provide very limited care in return. We see a couple's therapist through a local hospice, and we try to ease the burdens on one another. But it is a fierce, overpowering disease, and we struggle every day to be our best selves for one another. Can I ask you a question? Please, yeah. What was the experience of caregiving like for you? Mm. Um, my overwhelming experience of it, frankly, was like, this experience of like ferocity kind of there were so many things that I couldn't protect Paul from you know like dying being the biggest one but I felt either like I really wanted to or I was like crazy devoted to trying to figure out how to mitigate the things that I could so Paul had cancer and over the last year of his life he was like more sick or disabled um, and I remember one time I'm a doctor, so I've seen a lot of people's bodies, including with no clothes on. And I remember looking across our bedroom and like seeing him from the back. And he actually, for one second, I was like, oh, that looks like an 80 year old man body because it was like what your body looks like when you lose a lot of weight, like your skin kind of looks different. And I just remember being like, that's him. But then his body is like, I remember interacting with like a new body. One of the things I thought about a lot was like, when you are sick, when your life is shortened, when your abilities go away, you lose your ability to feel like an agent. And so then you can start to feel like an object instead of a subject. And it's a weird feeling for anybody. And for him as like a young male neurosurgeon, like you're pretty used to being in charge of everything. So I had a sense of like, 
how do I support him in remaining an agent? And then also how much of an agent he remained to me in many ways. We had a new baby at the time and our daughter was eight months old when Paul died. But all through that last year when she was a baby and he was really sick, I was having the like catastrophic thoughts of new motherhood, right? And I remember at one time Paul said, when we were sleep training Katie, I was like, I think this is going to scar her for life. I can hear her crying in her bedroom. And he was like, you know, if she needs therapy later in her life, it's not going to be because of sleep training. And he was able to like make a million comments like that to me, support me emotionally. And I carry a lot of things forward that he said. Thank you for sharing those reflections. It was still incredibly hard even with that deep emotional connection as sustenance. Because taking care of someone, while it can be so meaningful and intimate, is also about learning to live alongside sadness while juggling a million logistics and trying to catch a breather for yourself. Even when it's fueled by ferocious love, it can be a constant exercise in coping. Despite not knowing Rachel nearly as well as Adi, I feel a sort of kinship with her, and she and Adi both have this mix of brilliance and groundedness. I wanted to ask her how things were going for her. I I think definitely the hardest part is the different parenting situation that we're in than we expected to be in. But, you know, I think that we both definitely, yeah, had this vision for having kids that was very much about sharing responsibilities and being equal parents as much as we could. I think like in the times when I'm having like a really difficult day with Carl or something like that and I'm like losing my temper, I always have this moment of like, you know, I just feel like I I could be a much better parent if I could take a break in those moments and yeah. So I think for both of us, that aspect is is really like both practically and emotionally challenging, um, you know, and obviously for to see the times when I know Carl or Adi would really love to be like roughhousing with Carl or um, chasing him around or all those sorts of things. And yeah, I mean, Carl is like a really physical kid and um, I know he's also like pretty hefty. So he's like 40 pounds now. Yeah, and I can't like throw him up in the air much anymore. I think that is the hardest part in a lot of ways. Like obviously the changes to our relationship are really difficult too. But I think that like that I can kind of deal with better than the stuff with Carl. Yeah. I asked Rachel whether she ever wrestled with asking why me, and if anything, she said, she tries to focus on the flip side of that question, the randomness of it all. It could have happened to anyone. She says, you have to keep going and see what the next random thing will bring. She's drawn some solace from reading, too. Rachel is a professor of English who studies old historical documents. You know, I've read so many letters written by people in the 18th century and I don't know if this is like morbid or comforting but you know they're all dead and it's you can sort of put things into this very long perspective in a way and see the ways that 
people are kind of grappling with major life events at the time and now maybe in both of those scenarios like with Adi and with um with parenting stuff like I've felt more of a connection to these you know long dead people mm, like you felt like contextualized in a way like or yeah. connected or yeah I mean I guess as a scholar I'm somewhat resistant to that like I think that people in the past were really different from us and like we need to keep that in mind when we're studying them but at the same time they're really similar to us and so there are all these ways that you can like feel that that kind of connection and yeah I think in a way that does sometimes help me put what we're going through in a in a bit of perspective but even still even when you can catch some perspective The losses that come with illness, the day-to-day, can still be so hard. So Rachel lands on the same thing Adi did. Strategies for coping, for living alongside hardship, practicing what Pema Chadron said. In the end, Rachel says it's Carl himself who best models acceptance to both her and Adi. I think that one of the things that has been really fascinating is like how normal everything is for Carl and he'll sometimes say like Abba's legs don't work but he really is just like that's what Adi's like and that's what his life is like um and so so yeah I mean I think in that way he's sort of like and I think that is a place that that I would like to get to to just be like well this is what our life is like and like all families are different, all families have challenges, um, and this is what our family is dealing with. Um, I love that idea of like, I hope I grow up to be more like Carl. Yeah. (laughs) At the end of our day together, I asked Adi about his hopes for Carl as Carl grows up. I think I have very simple and cliched hopes for him. I want him to be happy. I want him to find purpose and meaning. In terms of what we are doing to pursue that, The biggest thing is that we've decided to try to give him a sibling. So Rachel is now four months pregnant with a girl. That's really cool. (laughs) Congratulations. Wow. Their announcement took my breath away. I mean, Paul and I did this too. Our daughter Katie was conceived while Paul was ill and born eight months before he died. Seeing another family make a similar choice though, it made me feel dizzy just totally struck by how life is full of joy and pain, sometimes all at once, and with the volume turned all the way up on both. But like Rachel says, you just have to keep going. We know that's what we want. We would want to do if Adi didn't have ALS. And so it's sort of like, should we let ALS take that away from us too? And for Rachel and Adi, having a baby while facing down ALS was an act of resistance. So Carl has a sister now, and her name is Willow Simone. In every episode of Gravity, we have a poem. It helps me really let in new ways of thinking and feeling about life in all of its dimensions. This episode's poem is in honor of Adi and Rachel's family and their resistance work to create a better world for their children and everyone else's. 
It's read by Liz Jaff, the president of Be a Hero, an activist organization that fights for progressive policy, which she co-founded with Adi. Liz is reading Maya Angelou's poem, When We Come to It, about agency and being human and the miraculous possibility that comes from believing in justice and in something bigger than yourself. We, this people, on a small and lonely planet, traveling through casual space, past aloof stars, across the way of indifferent suns, to a destination where all signs tell us it is possible and imperative that we learn a brave and startling truth. And when we come to it, to the day of peacemaking, when we release our fingers from fists of hostility and allow the pure air to cool our palms, when we come to it, when the curtain falls on the minstrel show of hate and faces sooted with scorn are scrubbed clean, when battlefields and coliseum no longer rake our unique and particular sons and daughters up with the bruised and bloody grass to lie in identical plots in foreign soil, when the rapacious storming of the churches, the screaming racket in the temples ceased, when the pennants are waving gaily, when the banners of the world tremble stoutly in the good clean breeze, when we come to it, when we let the rifles fall from our shoulders and children dress their dolls in flags of truce, when landmines of death have been removed and the aged can walk into evenings of peace, when religious ritual is not perfumed by the incense of burning flesh and childhood dreams are not kicked awake by nightmares of abuse. When we come to it, then we will confess that not the pyramids with their stones set in mysterious perfection nor the gardens of Babylon hanging as eternal beauty in our collective memory, nor the Grand Canyon kindled into delicious color by western sunsets, nor the Danube flowing its blue soul into Europe, not the sacred peak of Mount Fuji stretching into the rising sun, neither Father Amazon nor Mother Mississippi, who, without favor, nurture all creatures in the depths and on the shores. These are not the only wonders of the world. When we come to it, we, this people, on this minuscule and kithless globe, who reach daily for the bomb, the blade, and the dagger, yet who petition in the dark for tokens of peace, we, this people, on this moat of matter, in whose mouths abide cankerous words, which challenge our very existence, yet out of those same mouths come songs of such exquisite sweetness, that the heart falters in its labor, and the body is quieted into awe. We, this people, on this small and drifting planet, whose hands can strike with such abandon that in a twinkling life is sapped from the living, yet those same hands can touch with such healing, irresistible tenderness that the haughty neck is happy to bow and the proud back is glad to bend. Out of such chaos, of such contradiction, we learn that we are neither devils nor divines. When we come to it, we, this people, on this wayward floating body, created on this earth, of this earth, have the power to fashion for this earth a climate where every man and every woman can live freely without sanctimonious piety, without crippling fear. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible, we are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. Thank you so much for joining Adi Barkin, Rachel King, and me in this episode of Gravity. 
Gravity is produced by Maddie Foley and Lindsay Cradwell, with help from Taylor Williamson from Wonder Media Network. Original music is by Rachel Wardell. Rekha Murthy is our editor. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer. Special thanks to Gina Delvac and Jordan Abel. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. And you can follow me, Lucy, on Twitter at RocketGirlMD. Please take time to share Gravity with a friend and to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this bonus feature sponsored by BetterHelp, an online counseling platform. Therapy is something I often recommend to my own patients. Here, I got to talk with licensed marriage and family therapist Hesu Joe on a personal level. Hesu is a BetterHelp therapist and their clinical support lead. I reached her at home and even got to hear a little from her dog. Hesu opens up about the issues her clients are bringing to her these days, how she copes, and why representation in therapy matters. So Hesu, it's so nice to meet you. I'm wondering, maybe just to get started, if you can tell us a little bit about who you are and what you love about being a therapist. I got into the field of mental health when I was in undergrad. So I've been in this field for almost 15 years. And when I was a child, I didn't know what therapy was. And when I say child, like really up until 20, 21, 22, I didn't know that this field really existed um, so my journey really started with being exposed to the world of psychology through undergraduate courses. You know, we all take that psych 101 kind of class. And in this journey, like, what do I really, really like about being a therapist? It's extremely humbling. You know, like every single day I get invited into the very intimate space of somebody's psyche. And I have this unique opportunity to really accompany someone's journey that they are on looking for self-actualization. Um, being able to find improved insight, better functioning in their lives, and feeling like they're living a fulfilling life. I myself um, like first went to therapy when I was 30 or so. I was a medical resident and went for depression, and it was really helpful. But then I think I hadn't realized how helpful the skills would end up being throughout my life after that, you know, like just thinking about how we all have automatic negative thoughts or like learning to challenge those or learning, you know, like a feeling is not a fact, surprise. And, and I feel like I learned about how to meditate and even negotiating tactics and stuff. And I, I think like later when my husband had cancer, but then also now like parenting, dating, dealing with sexism at work, all kinds of things I found it really helpful for. So I, I think it's interesting to hear you say self-actualization instead of just like you know, sort of this idea of health is more than the absence of disease. <laughs> so can you talk about that? Like what what you mean by self-actualization and then maybe the role of therapy in, in that? I think I moved away from this idea that the goal of therapy is to rid yourself of pathology or disease a long time ago. To me, it's the process in which you learn about yourself and how you relate to others. And you know, in, in this process and this journey that folks embark on when they come to me for therapy, I'm not really trying to figure out what's wrong to fix problems. It's more, what are the things that you see yourself doing that you are experiencing challenges, barriers in right now? Um, Self-actualization to me is about like figuring out who you are, which includes 
identifying your values, your opinions, um, the way that you exist in this world. I love that. Could you talk about what kinds of issues are people bringing to you now, post-pandemic or in the aftermath of the pandemic? And what do you tell them? Ooh, um, well, that's, I, I think most of my clients, if not all of them, we're not feeling like it's post-pandemic yet. And now it's like an another adjustment that's coming forward. So I'm seeing anxiety level spike again because a lot of folks got used to whatever this new normal was. And now it's like, okay, now I have to start thinking about what life is going to look like when and if I have to start commuting again, going back to the office, like figuring out schedules with my social life and being accountable to people again. And, you know, for folks that have experienced major loss during this time, I think they're observing everybody in the world around them moving on. But I'm still over here having experienced so much loss. How am I supposed to move on? How can I move on? Um, so that's, that's some of the stuff that I've been seeing happen in the past couple of weeks in my sessions with clients. What kind of things do you tell people about how to hold that or how to move forward? I, I definitely don't have the magic sauce in terms of advice or answers. I'm right there with you. I've been having to get used to this new normal too and I'm also experiencing anxiety about going back to certain things so for me to help them figure out how to hold space it's about modeling right it's about showing and speaking through the discussions that we have and the skills that they're building and the you know the various mechanisms that we're exploring within them um so my big reminder, my cliche thing or mantra that I like to tell clients is like, you know, you've already made it through the hardest things in your life. It's already within you to now move through another change that's ahead. Could you talk about stigma? And like, what would you tell someone who is kind of carrying a stigma in their, in themselves, their family, their culture? This is a very multifaceted and multi-layered question for me because I mentioned I'm raised by immigrants. I'm a person of color. I navigate this white world in a yellow body. And so stigma when it comes to mental health service is huge in the Asian, Asian American community. And there's a pervasive idea in Western culture too that you're weak or that you're lazy if you can't figure this stuff out on your own. Like, look at all the people around you that are doing just fine, even though they had just as hard of a life as you. I have seen this change over time. Now you see ads for signing up for therapy on social media. Now you see, we're seeing commercials on TV and billboards on the street. Like, people are talking about on a very regular basis that they have a therapist. Um, so in that way, I am seeing a big shift um, because it's not as taboo now to talk about what's bothering you. Could you talk about representation in therapy and finding a therapist, how that factors into your practice? And I guess what, what people can feel empowered to look for. Representation. We hear it all the time. Representation matters. And I used to think that therapy was only for white people because all therapists that I saw were white. So that's why I know representation matters. Race and outward representation really affects the way that we navigate this world because it changes the way that people treat us, look at us, feel about us. Um, all of that stuff matters. So how can we holistically look at someone's overall wellness and not consider their existence in a yellow or black or a brown body, right? So I'm not saying that you need to find a therapist that looks like you. But I do think that there is value in finding someone that does have an empathic attunement to your life experience. What has surprised you most about being a therapist? 
I think I mentioned a little while ago how humbling this job is. And I think I'm still surprised when people come in thinking that I know how to fix them. Um, I get surprised that people somehow believe that some other person is going to be more of an expert on their lives than they are. Can I just ask you, what helps you cope? You know, it's it comes down to the pillars of self-care. It's it, are you sleeping good? Are you eating good? Are you feeling good? You know, this this is all part of wellness. So these three things are my major tips is making sure that your body is well, making sure that you are eating well. And that's that's part of physical wellness. Also making sure that you're getting enough sleep. And then it's important to maintain social connection. We're hardwired for it. And, you know, finding things in this life to still enjoy, that is part of self-care. And and that's how I cope. Thank you so much to Hesu for sharing her insight on therapy and mental health. And thank you to BetterHelp for continuing to improve access to mental health resources. BetterHelp counseling is available anywhere in the world and financial aid is available. To get 10% off your first month, visit our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash gravitypod. We'll be back next week with a new episode.